into God's word. Father God, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word, especially, Father, that we can look at it and see things that speak to our hearts and speak to our lives. And I pray that, God, these words that come out of my mouth today, God, will be yours, the words that you have given me. Your Holy Spirit would use them to transform our lives. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. All right, values. Values. Values are things that we, that you and I believe, are truly important to us. And really what our values do is they ultimately dictate the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we live. Really, our values are the driving force of our lives. For example, if you say family, family is a value of mine. If family is a value of yours, what you're going to do is you're going to do everything possible to be able to make sure you're spending time with your family. And when that's not happening, you're probably feeling uh, you're, not, you're struggling a bit when that's not happening. So that's how values work. Now, in last week's sermon, we looked at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry where, remember, he called his first four disciples and he began his healing ministry and he began to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Okay, and remember we talked about the kingdom of heaven as being God's complete rule and reign in the hearts and lives of those who submit to his authority. So if everybody says, what's the kingdom of God? This is what it is, the kingdom of heaven. It's the rule and the reign. Actually, it's the rule and reign of God in the universe, everywhere, but for our purposes and for right now, it's in our li- the lives of people that have committed themselves to be under his authority. Now, what Jesus does next, though, now, what we're gonna start going to is nothing short of revolutionary. What he's going to do now. This is amazing. These next few weeks, this next handful of weeks, are you going to see this? So what happens is he gathers his newly formed group of disciples. He's got his little posse, and he gets together with them. And what he does, he goes up and he finds this hill. Okay, and he's going to talk to them about some things. What he does is he's going to be instructing them on the values of kingdom living. Okay, what life in the kingdom of heaven practically looks like. It's not just about platitudes and, you know, we think sometimes that Jesus said all these platitudinal things that, how do we relate? Today, we're going to start with Jesus, how he gets very practical with this. And as we're going to see over the next handful of weeks, the values that he talks about here are nothing short of a lifestyle that really is radically different than the society that we live in, Okay. It's a call to really embrace values that really are counterculture, and they are also radically life-transforming. The premise of where I'm going, just so you know where I'm going today, the premise we're going to look at this morning is that the kingdom living embraces kingdom values which advance the kingdom's witness. Now, I'm not big on idioms all the time, but this, this is what kind of came through my studies this week, that this is where we're that king living embraces kingdom values which advance the kingdom's witness. Now, these instructions that Jesus is going to give, like I said, they take place uh, in this place called, in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. I don't care if you've even never even been to church before. You've probably heard something, someone said something about the Sermon on the Mount. And really, this, the Sermon on the Mount, it encompasses the next three chapters that we're going to be looking at. Five, six, and seven is the Sermon on the Mount. And really, today's passage that we're going to look at, it really sets the tone for the entire Sermon on the Mount. 
and, in, and instructing by instructing on his values of the kingdom. Okay, he's going to be telling us these are the values of God's kingdom and for kingdom living. And he's also going to show us how living out those values gives us and our world a glimpse into the kingdom. Okay, that's where Jesus is going now. I mean, he hits the ground running with his ministry. So let's, let's, let's set the scene real quick here. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 5 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen. So the first two verses say this, Matthew 5, 1 and 2 say, Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, remember, we saw last week that due to his prolific healing ministry, that the crowd, I mean, Jesus had huge crowds that were now following him wherever that he went, okay? So he, this, that's this passage, he goes up to a mountain, or actually, more realistically, it was probably a hillside, where Jesus goes and sits down, and his disciples gather around him. Now, we see from this passage, so often you think that Jesus is talking to this massive crowd, and he's enunciating really loud. That's not what we see in this passage. What we see right away, that the disciples are Jesus' main audience, okay? He's speaking to the disciples, and the crowds were most likely, they just, they just wanted to be around, so they were probably within earshot. They were within ear distance. They were probably just kind of eavesdropping on this whole uh, discourse that Jesus is going to now enter into. So now he starts talking about it. Verses 3 through 10, I'm just going to read them, and then we're going to look at them. Okay, verses 3 to 10 begins this long discourse of kingdom living that, teaches, that he's going to be teaching on. Okay, it's really eight values of the kingdom living. Here we go. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 10 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Well, right away, you're going to notice that these blessings, or as they're called, beatitudes, as they're called, call to us as, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you truly claim to be a follower of Jesus, this is a way of life that he's calling us to that is, like I said, counter to the conventional values of the world that we live in. I mean, so much so that when those people that who embrace these values, he's going to say, your life is going to stand out. People are to take notice, and we're going to see that in a few minutes here. Now, Jesus says that this way of life causes a person to be blessed. Blessed are you. Now, contrary to belief, popular belief, being blessed by God does not mean material prosperity. It doesn't mean perfect circumstances. Okay, I'm blessed because whew, things have settled down. That's not what it means. To be blessed by God essentially means to be incredibly fortunate and fully satisfied because we have received his favor despite our circumstances. That's what it means to be blessed. Say it again. To be incredibly fortunate and fully satisfied because we have received his favor despite 
our circumstances. That's what it means to be blessed. So you put that in your minds as we go through these. Now, we would normally assume, normally assume that uh, someone who is blessed is probably strong, they're confident, you know, they're healthy, they're not lacking too many things. But look, Jesus says is blessed. Look who, yeah, look who he says here. It's really interesting. They're poor. They mourn. They're meek. They're hungry. They're persecuted. <laughs> Isn't that different than what the world would say is blessed? I mean, just go, just go to Twitter and type in hashtag blessed. I can guarantee you, you're going to see a whole lot of things that are counter to what the Bible says it means to really be blessed. Okay, the kingdom is truly an upside down kingdom. That's why we've, we've titled this whole entire series going through Matthew, Uptide, Upside Down Kingdom. It's really a paradoxical way of being blessed. Now, one thing, I want to go through something real quick before we look, go through these. One thing that's important to notice about these Beatitudes is a theological concept that's called already but not yet. It's called already but not yet. Already but not yet means that we are already experiencing the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven now. We're already experiencing thir- certain things but because of God's reign and because of God's rule in our heart. If you're a believer, you are exper- you're able to experience some of God's kingdom. Yet, we will not experience the full expression of the kingdom of heaven until, until sometime in the future. Look what John, 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We will see him as he is. What this means is as followers of Jesus, that some of these kingdom promises, are for the here and for now. Some things about experiencing God's kingdom are for now, and we'll experience those things. But much of the promises of the kingdom of heaven, we will experience in the future. We'll experience it later. And you know what? I was thinking about this. This really requires a mental shift for us, doesn't it? We live in this immediate kind of society, don't we? We expect things to come right away. It's a mental shift of of not wanting immediate gratification. I don't know about you, but I totally fit into that. It's funny, I was listening to, um, on Saturdays, I go hiking and listen to worship music, and this Christian song came on, and it was funny because he said something, they were talking about um, our propensity to demand drive-through peace and instant hope. Isn't that true? I know, it's corny, like most Christian songs a lot of times are, but that are story-related, not worship ones. But I thought it was was a great phrase. I love that phrase because it's so true. It so fits with our mindset these days. You see, you and I are children of the king. If you're a child of the king, but we we need to wait. We have to wait to fully see what it's going to look like. To God know God, the, the, know the experiences of the kingdom is down the road. It's coming. It is coming. So in that, with that in mind, let's take a closer look at these, what seem to be paradoxical values of kingdom living. Okay, let's jump right in. Now, poor in spirit. 
poor in spirit. This isn't talking about someone who's weak, got a, their weakness in character, but rather it's talking about how a person sees their relationship with God. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in his message translation. He says this, you are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. So good, so good. When we think of being poor, you know, we think of being needy and are without essentials, of having no money. I mean, think of what you think about in your mind when someone says there's someone out there that's poor. D.A. Carson, a commentator, he says this. I love this. He says, you're poor in spirit if you know there is nothing in you, not family ties, respect in the community, occupation, or so-called good works or personal holiness that is available enough to commend you to God. Put illustratively, you are blessed when you see you're just a beggar coming to the door of the kingdom without anything to give to get you in. And so you're pounding on the door, appealing to the king, oh Lord, let me in, oh Lord, give me what is needed for entrance. Your grace and your mercy, that's being needy. You see, the truth is that on our own, we are all completely spiritually bankrupt. The truth we don't like to hear, but on our own, we are spiritually Bankrupt, bankrupt. So to be fully satisfied in God, to be blessed, is to be fortunate to have received his rich favor despite our circumstances. Does that make sense? We have this rich favor that we have from him. That's riches. That is riches. That's the kingdom. Now, to mourn. We want to mourn. To mourn is not lament over difficult or intolerable situations. But it's mainly what he's talking about here is when we mourn over our sin and the other people's sin. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago? I mentioned the whole idea of hating our sin, of just despising it. That's what this is talking about. It's talking about mourning our sin. James, you want to hear how it really says, in James chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, listen to what he says. James says, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Oh, I love that. Great, great, great. Then he says this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's me. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I don't say we walk around going, oh, I'm a Christian, (laughs) you know, because my sin just makes me so horrible. No. It's that attitude we have towards sin is to be... It's, it, we, we're to be fully satisfied with God. What it means is to be blessed in this, in this area is that we don't, take the, we don't take sin lightly. The truth is, I think that we take sin way too lightly. We take sin and the consequences of it way too lightly. One writer I read this week said, the horror of our sin magnifies the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. See, when we're aware of our sin and we're just, oh, we just can't stand it, it makes what Christ did for us just all that more magnificent and wonderful. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever been a time when you're just going, oh, I can't stand this? What's that? Like with the Apostle Paul saying, why do I do what I don't want to do? And why don't I do what I want to do? You find yourself just going, uh, but then find yourself overcome with the fact, the thing that he very said, that said after that, 
But thanks be to God. Thank you. I mean, you can imagine him just breaking down, weeping at one point over a sin. And then over here, he weeps over how amazing it is to have God's love and mercy and forgiveness. Must have been amazing for him. Now, we're blessed when we know the comfort that we receive due to God's grace and forgiveness. Love, many of you love, I've heard people say they love this psalm. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saved, saves the crushed in spirit. People that are brokenhearted over their sin, brokenhearted over what that does to their relationship with their intimacy with their Heavenly Father, broken over what their sin does in relationships to other people. But God is near to the brokenhearted. All right, the meek. The meek are not those who are down on themselves or always cringing in fear or being afraid that people are going to run over. That's what we think of. When we think of someone meek, we think of someone, you know, cowering behind somebody else. That, remember the old comic strip of the skinny guy getting the sand kicked in his face by, I can't remember what his name was, the big muscle guy? That we think that's what we think of when we think meek. But what, really what he's talking about, the meek refers to gentleness. It refers to a spirit of humility. It's this willingness to serve others, not to have to fight for my rights or argue for, this is what I believe, these are my values, and you're going to know them. You're going to believe them like I do. Or why don't you believe them like I do? That's not what, that's what he's talking about. People that we don't feel like we have to do that. We don't have to convince people and be angry because they don't believe like we believe or vote like we vote or whatever. That's not what the meek do. And Jesus was a perfect model for us in meekness. And, he was, and the reason he was because here he is, God. He possessed, Jesus possessed, when he was on earth, possessed all the power in the universe. Yet what did he do? He, for our sake, he submitted to being crucified, to being tortured, to being ridiculed, lied about. And he wasn't going to stand his ground and do what was opposite of what he came to do. He was going to be obedient to what he came to do, what his values, he was going to be obedient. What this tells me, really, it tells us that the meek truly are the ones that have it all. The meek have it all. They're not worried about trying to convince people they're fine with who they are. All right, hunger and thirst for righteousness. To hunger and thirst for righteousness doesn't mean to simply desire to want to be a good person or to behave better. It's a longing to be holy. It's just this deep longing to be holy, deeply craving to live like God requires us to live. Free, we have this craving to be free from the desire of sin, self, the very things that drag us away from that sweet fellowship of our Father God. The person who is truly hungers and for righteousness is blessed because they are completely satisfied with their standing before God. Not because we've done so good. Okay, I'm good with God because I haven't screwed up in that area in quite a while. Not at all. It's because Christ's redeeming work on the cross has given us the satisfaction of knowing I stand righteous before God. Amazing. All right, so essentially these first four Beatitudes tell us that kingdom living is about really recognizing our need for God. 
Okay, that's what the first four, helping us to recognize our, our need for God. Now, we're going to see in the next four speak more to our person's disposition or really to our frame of mind. Okay, let's go to the next one, to be merciful. To be merciful implies really what it replies, forgiveness and empathy. Okay, it's a willing to see things from an other person's point of view. Okay, it's, and, not really, and, not, and not be quickly offended either. When someone has a different point of view going, how can you believe that? Or not to seek someone else's demise or demand revenge. That's what someone who is merciful is. Well, you did this, you deserve that. I mean, you get that. When we're merciful, we are just like what God is. And it's something that we all desire to be treated like, like because it's how God treated us. Look at Psalm 103 up here, eight, verses 8 and 10 the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal, I love this, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That, my is mercy. That's what it means to be merciful. Now to the pure and, be pure in heart. Be pure in heart, what this means is to have a heart that really is without hypocrisy. Okay? It's single-minded in our desire to, above all, to be who God wants us to be, to be holy, to be set apart for God. That's where our mind is, okay? That's where our heart wants us to be pure. We want to be holy. Not, like I said, not because we act good, but because our deeds are because we know that God loves us no matter what, and we have freedom to be who we are in him, okay? This beatitude actually is based on Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 says this. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Isn't this a song? Don't we sing a song like this? Give us clean. Yeah, we do. We do a song that's kind of based on this also. That's what it's talking about. When this is our single-minded desire, when it's our single-minded desire to have, I want to be this, God. I want to be holy. I want to be who you want me to be. Then we are able to recognize God's hand working in our lives and working in the lives of others because our focus is correct. You see, when we're focused on how God sees us, we're able to see his hand working. Oh, that was God doing that. That was God working in there. I see that. I don't necessarily understand, but that was God working. That's a great thing, see, to be able to see God. All right, peacemakers. Peacemakers are people that go out of their way to make peace. You ever met people like this? I mean, they're all about reconciliation. I'm not talking about people that are afraid of conflict. That's not the point here. I think, I think we get confused here. A lot of times we think peacemakers are the people, you know, just don't cause any trouble. Don't cause any wrinkles. Yeah, Esther, you're not. Yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what a peacemaker is. A peacemaker wants, a peacemaker strives for reconciliation. A peacemaker will do whatever, it th- whatever they can to set things right. Now, not not in a, but in a way that's a godly way, in a way that builds up everybody around it. And they go about it by being selfless. 
They go about it by being humble. They go about it by being lovable. Have you ever been in a situation where you could tell someone is trying to reconcile a situation? And you've probably seen both sides of this. Someone is going into reconciliation, and really they are just demanding that you see things a certain way. You've got to see it this way. This is the way it is. What's your problem? Right? We have all, we've all encountered that. But what a peacemaker does, a peacemaker comes in and will do everything possible to, for reconciliation to happen, but they will be humble. They won't make it about themselves. They won't make it about their needs, about it happening the way they want it to happen. They're all about serving the other person. Man, that's so different than what we hear today in our society. You want to reconcile something, you go in some kick some butt. You just take, you know, and take names and you just go. That's like, that's not how, that's, this is, remember, this is like this upside down kingdom here. And people are going to notice when that happens. Now, this idiom, the sons of, he talks about here, often indicates that do, those who share a certain character or a certain status. So when we're peacemakers, once again, we're demonstrating the character of our Father God. And people are going to notice. It's going to have an impact around us. Okay, let's, let's look at the eighth one. The eighth beatitude we see here are blessed. People are blessed when they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, we all know, many of us know here, that the reality of as we pursue and embrace these kingdom values, we're undoubtedly in some way face some form of of persecution from a society that does not have the same values that we have. I read, I read one guy said today, maybe if everybody likes you, you're not a Christian. Wow, that was a little harsh. But I understand, <laughs> but I understand what he was, where he was coming from. If all you do, everything you're doing is just to make sure you fit in well and don't rock the boat and all, probably not living by the values of the kingdom. We probably aren't in some, in some ways. It, it, changes, it changes the world around us. Once again, according to Jesus, these people feel incredibly fortunate and fully satisfied that they have received his favor despite their circumstances. People can chide them, talk behind their back, accuse them, all sorts of things, but they can be satisfied with their life. Now, in these next couple of verses, 11 and 12, what happens is Jesus really kind of expands on this same value here, okay? He expands on the same value about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Look what it says in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when, you re when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil and against you and falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what these verses tell us that the reason that we are persecuted is not because we're being so good, or not because we've been Republican, or not because we chastise the president, or not because all these different things that we feel like, oh, okay, that you're lining up well with society. No. Or even that we're religious or that we're even self-sacrificing. It's because our identification is with Jesus. That's why we're persecuted, he says. Don't be persecuted. We've talked about this. Remember, we went that whole series on 1 John talking about suffering? Don't, don't suffer for doing something stupid. 
Don't suffer for being one of those Christians out there that people go, I just can't stand being around that person because they're just so offensive. That's not what he's talking about here. Jesus says, listen to what Jesus says in John 15. He says, the world, if the world hates you, this is some strong language here. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Isn't that what we want so many times? People want, I want me loved. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the words that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, it's funny. We read this, we hear this, we're taught this, but I don't know about you, but still in utter shock when we're persecuted for our faith, right? It's like, what? Wait a, wait, wait a second. This is America. Come on. This is a land of religious tolerance, right? Wrong. Wrong. It is not. That's not what the Bible teaches. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, indeed, as in, get this. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I thought we're taking on this martyr complex, okay? And it's not that we go out looking for persecution. Now, that's not what he's talking about at all. What he's saying here is we should expect it. If persecution comes because you're living the values of the kingdom that's supposed to happen. It's not a wrong thing. It is going to happen. Then he says, when we are criticized for our faith, for living out these values, he says, what, what, what are we supposed to do? He says, rejoice. That's not my first reaction. That's not mine. He says, rejoice. And here he gives us two reasons, okay? Two reasons he gives us to rejoice. First is because he says what? Our reward is great in heaven is Great. Now, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier about this concept of already but not yet and our fight against the demand to have immediate gratification. The truth is, you guys, this world is not the place where we will ultimately be rewarded for living out kingdom values. This is not the place where we're going to get that because it's not our home. We don't belong here. This is not, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are other. You belong now to the kingdom of heaven. So, of course, you're in a foreign, a foreign land. So we shouldn't be surprised that that happens. The other reason Jesus tells us to rejoice when we're persecuted for identifying with him is because we're in good company, he says. Not only are we to look forward and say, wow, some great stuff is coming. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to live knowing that that is coming. But he says we're also to look back. Many of you are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11 that uh, talks about the heroes of our faith. It says, whom, and he talks about there, who really all these people they were not rewarded in this life for their. Many of them saw only persecution, only get people coming after them and negative and false. That's all they saw, some of them. Yet they still found hope. 
They found meaning. They found joy in God's promises, the promises of the kingdom living that they weren't able to experience now even, but that were coming. That was great motivation. So we're to rejoice when persecuted, even as the apostles, the apostles, this happened to them too. I love this one verse talking about where the apostles, at one point they were put in prison, they were preaching, and then they were put in prison, they were beaten, falsely accused, put in front of the high council, the Jewish council, and questions and questions, and they said, then they let them go. They said, okay, you guys can leave. You're, you're gone, but don't say anything, anything, anything more. Look at it in Acts chapter 5, verse 4 says this. Then they left the presence of the council totally bummed. Not at all. Check this out. They've just been beaten, lied about, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were able to leave going, what most people would say, oh, that was terrible, I'm going to call my lawyer. This is not right. Let's get HR on the phone. You know, we got to take care of this. And not that some of those things aren't necessarily wrong sometimes, but that should not be our mindset and our first reaction in kingdom living. We want to be able to say, yes, I got to suffer. Not for doing something stupid or looking like a weirdo Christian, but I got to suffer because of the one reason I'm identified with Jesus. I shared my faith in that person and went, that's stupid. That's not a reaction, is it? But that's what he's saying here. It's a blessing because I know who I belong to. Upside down kingdom, people. It's paradox. It really is interesting. All right, this last section here, verses 13 through 16, what these do is give us a picture of how this kingdom living advances the kingdom's witness, okay? How does that happen? Okay, now he gets very practical here, okay? We're going to see that Jesus uses two metaphors that we're <laughs> very familiar with that he's using in advancing the kingdom's witness. The first one is in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, we know that back then, salt was used as a preservative. We could talk about all the things about salt and preserving the culture and all that, all that thing. Yet Jesus make it clear here that he is talking specifically about taste. He's talking about flavor here. Things that salt enhances the flavor of. Popcorn. Mmm. French fries. Steak. What else? What, what else do you like to put salt on? Tortilla chips. Tortilla chips? Cauliflower? Okay. Chili? Okay. Oh, yeah, he's adamant about that one. Shane's adamant about chili and salt. Okay. All right. You're going to die young, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, that's what, it, that's what it does. It enhances the flavor of things. And that's what kingdom living does. It enhances life, enriching its goodness and making God's work stand out from the norm. When we are doing God's work, even if people don't like it or they hate us for it, what it does, it stands out from the norm and it's God's work and it's flavoring and it's enhancing the world. Even though people might think that's not enhancement. 
We know what it is. That's what the salt being the salt really means. Now, one of the best ways, though, to make something less salty, I even looked this up, I and mean, there's all sorts of crazy ways. You know, I looked up all these ladies had their blogs about how to cook, and it was endless. So I read just one. Um, no, it's just a couple. But really, one of the ways, there's a lot of ways, but one way to make something less salty is to put a whole lot of other stuff in it. Like if you have, a, you have beef broth and you put, you know, some salt, you put more beef broth in and that will make it less salty. So you add something else to dilute the saltiness. <laughs> That's something else. Good. Exactly. Do you have one of those blogs? Okay. Uh, love it. <laughs> but what it does is dilute. So here's the, here's the thing, though. We lose our saltiness. We become bland and lose our distinct kingdom flavor when we allow ourselves to be diluted by priorities, by prioritizing things above the values of the kingdom. Whenever there's values in our life that we value, that we value higher, even good things that we hire, but higher than God's kingdom, we dilute our saltiness. Things that aren't necessarily bad or wrong, like money, comfort, status, pleasure, our wants, our needs, all things that God is concerned about. But when any of those things, family, any of those relationships, anything becomes more of a value, we value more than kingdom living, than kingdom values, our saltiness is diluted. Now, notice that this command to be, this is not a command to be salt. He's going, I command you to be salt. It's a statement of fact. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are salt. You're salt. The question is, are you enhancing the distinct flavor of the kingdom by living out its values? Now, we see the other way of living out our values of the kingdom and advancing the kingdom is and our kingdom's witness is in the last couple of verses we'll look at. It. Here we go. Verses 14 through 16 say this. The light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what this obviously means is that we're not to hide from the world, but we are to penetrate the darkness of it. That's our role. That's what we do. That's how we enhance the kingdom. We're, we're to be like that combined impact of a city that's on a hill. It's dark all around. They're up on a hill, and all the lights of the city are on. You can't miss it. It's kind of like you've ever driven in the desert, and all of a sudden you come up over a mountain. This isn't, a, this isn't necessarily on a mountain, but then you drive down and you see there's a, a, a town out there. And you can see every single light and it lights it up. That's what he's saying we are to be, we are to be like, okay? Where we are be a, be a, so a lamp also, he talks about being a lamp. Like say you put a lamp in a dark room, you can see that thing, it lights, it lights up the house. And the reason we are to shine, this is interesting, it says, so that people may see what? Our good works so that people would see our good works and give glory 
to God. Okay? What we see here is that Christianity is made most visible through good works. That's how the world is going to see true Christian values as they're lived out. In other words, followers of Jesus live the value of the kingdom. The world sees the attractiveness and they see the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. And to that end, they want to give him glory by following him many times. That's what does it. Not just being a good person. When, when we love when we love and forgive our enemies, the world tastes the salt and they see the light of the gospel. When we demonstrate that we trust God to provide for us, no matter what, provide our needs, or that we see they, we live in a way that they can see that no matter what, we know that God is for us no matter what is happening, they see the light and they taste the salt of the gospel. When we demonstrate that we trust God to provide everything for us, it's a powerful thing when people are more prone to worry, stress, be anxious. What's different about you? You should be freaked out about this situation. You should be so mad at her. You should be so upset with how things all went. Yeah, I'm not happy with it at all. But you know what? I've got this peace. And then talk about that and boy that'll that will blow people away the bottom line is that living out the values of the kingdom should be perfect visible to everybody around us everybody should be able to see the values of the kingdom in our lives you see the kingdom living is meant to reflect a distinct relationship that those who are in the kingdom have with its ruler does that make sense if i am under god's rule if God rules my life, people should be able to look at my life and see what the ruler is like because I'm living for him, everything I do for him. Obviously, that doesn't mean that we don't proclaim the gospel in words. Obviously, we share our faith. We talk to people. But ultimately, really, people want to see our Christianity lived out. They want to see it. Unfortunately, so many things are done in the name of Christianity that give the exact opposite message that we're trying to proclaim. They aren't kingdom values. That's why it's so important for us to know what our values are, to know what the kingdom values are. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next five, six, seven weeks is talking about these things as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Our prayer needs to be this as believers. Our prayer needs to be that the Lord will give us the strength to live out the values of the kingdom so that we can truly be blessed, but we can ultimately that God would be glorified and that his kingdom would be proclaimed. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you love us so much that you don't let us leave us where we're at, even in our, even in our faith that you challenge us in ways that um, are so counter to what our culture says, but even our own, our own self. I know I read these things and I look at some of these values of the kingdom and I go, ouch, that's, that's hard for me. So I pray, God, as individuals, but also as a body of Christ, God, that we would crave to live out the values of your kingdom, that we would know what the values 
of the kingdom are, and that would just penetrate our lives so much as we embrace them, as we allow them to form everything we say, do, think, act upon. God, we desire that for our lives, and we, we know the enemy desires the exact opposite, and we know we're in a battle. So give us the strength, Father, to be kingdom li- live kingdom-wise as you desire, so for you to get all the glory. In your son's name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Let's-